So thank you so much for having me here. And I have to say, Ed warned me that there's like something called MIT time, that it sounds like we're right on MIT time, right? <laughs> like 15 minutes in, we're all good. Um, so it's, it's wonderful to be here um, and to talk to you about my book. I feel like this is, so the book came out in September. Um, and I think was sort of this oddly perfect moment to talk about online harassment and stalking. We had this convergence, at least in terms of public consciousness, of the problem of online harassment, we had the convergence of two really kind of crucial events, right? The, the iCloud hack and leaking of celebrities' nude photos and sort of spread all over the internet. And Jennifer Lawrence's kind of powerful statement in Vanity Fair that this wasn't acceptable, right? It was an invasion of her sexual privacy. Um, and at the same time, right, we had the fever pitch of Gamergate hit us, right, with the attacks on extraordinary women in gaming. Um, and that's when Brianna Wu and I, we started talking and, and as I said to Brianna, our very first conversation on the phone, I think I was in California, I was like, you're my heroine. Um, you, you've been extraordinary in a way that's incredibly hard for all the victims that I interviewed and talked to over, you know, been writing about this for seven years. And it's incredibly hard for victims to come forward and to talk publicly about their experience. And so it's really, it's, I have to say, a real gift to me that you're here today. Um, and of course, to all of us. So uh, what I'm going to do is talk about the phenomenon of cyber harassment and its sort of destructive path. Um, the, the role that law can and should play um, and what it can do within the confines of the First Amendment. Um, and then the role that companies can play. Because um, we're seeing, like even in the last month, I feel like I keep saying hooray, like on Twitter, as we're, you know, we're seeing Twitter and Reddit and Facebook uh, ban non-consensual pornography. So we're seeing some really proactive, I think important, maybe belated, that's okay, moves by, by social media companies. Um, okay, so often, you know, we might say, well, what is cyber harassment? How do we define it? Um, and I'm going to borrow a bit from criminal law just for the bare bones definition. And then I think more important is how it's perpetrated. But it is a, a course of conduct that's aimed at or targeted at a particular person that's designed to and that causes substantial emotional distress and often the fear of physical harm. Um, but of course, much more important is how it's perpetrated. And it's it's in four kind of distinct ways that harassers attack individuals, right? So the first mode of attack is to do whatever you can to terrorize someone. So it means threatening physical violence, um, impersonating someone online, suggesting their interest in sex, and then putting up their home address. Um, the second sort of mode of attack is to do whatever you can to hijack someone's career. So posting defamatory, lies about someone online, and then manipulating search engines to ensure that the defamation is, is prominent in a search of someone's name. Um, the third sort of way in which we see harassers attack victims is to invade privacy, right? So that could be hacking someone's computer to steal their confidential information, including their social security numbers, um, and then posting that information, often including nude images, right? Um, and, and lastly, it's to use technology to shove people offline, whether it's a DDoS attack or falsely reporting people's online platforms as abusive of terms of service to knock them offline, right? Um, so I'm going to tell you about two experiences of two very different people um, who've experienced online abuse. And so I think um, it's hard to imagine you know, this sort of dry definition 
But it's often a perfect storm of all of these four strategies that when they come together, it's devastating, right? So I know I'm sure you're, and this is gonna be, I think, an important prelude to talking about Gamergate, is the experience of Anita Sarkeesian. So uh, about two and a half years ago, Anita is a media critic, and she was had a number of YouTube videos um, on her YouTube channel about sexism in video games. Like, no shock, right? No one in this room is shocked that Anita would be putting up these videos. Um, and she wanted to fund a documented, you know, a documentary series on Kickstarter. And she announced that she was doing this, right? And about a week after her announcement of this Kickstarter campaign, a cyber mob descends. And in her inbox, on her Twitter feed, um, she starts receiving sort of graphic rape threats, and some including her home address, some including graphics that looked like she was being raped, so like drawings, right? Um, a game appears online called Beat Up Anita Sarkeesian. So no matter what sort of um, button you push on your computer, right, her face, she's a very striking woman, so you know it's Anita's face. Um, her, her face gets sort of increasingly sort of purple and bloodied. Um, the cyber mob went after her livelihood, right? So Kickstarter received hundreds of false complaints that her Kickstarter campaign was fraudulent. And her online platforms, and this is kind of the irony, so the cyber mob falsely reports her different channels or different platforms as hate speech, like let's have a moment, really? Uh, <laughs> spam and terrorism, right? In the effort that it's shut down, right? And because Anita was really well known at the time, um, I think even then was well known, um, folks at Facebook got in touch with her and said, what is this? This is confusing. Um, and so she was able to forestall the knocking down of her platforms, but her site, Feminist Frequency, was continually hit with DDoS attacks that would knock her site offline for days or you know, for moments at a time. And she struggled with this for two and a half years. Now we know this summer, as there is this sort of heated attacks on women in gaming, um, the uh, attacks then, of course, uh, Anita is not uh, alone in this, right? Um, but they, they really escalate over the summer, and she starts getting texts and emails with, with, a, with now not only just graphic descriptions of, of how people are going to rape her, but her home address and her parents' home address, right? Um, she's supposed to give a talk at Utah State University, um, and two days before, the dean um, of the university got a phone call, anonymous, um, and also emails saying, if Anita Sarkeesian speaks at your school, there'll be a school shooting worse than Columbine and Newtown Square combined, right? And so Anita cancels the talk. Okay. Um, but it's not just really well-known people. You might say, oh, it's just either women in gaming, really prominent women um, who are well-known, right? But at least in the course of writing my book, it's really the, uh, at least the percentage of people I talked to when I interviewed over 60 people, were really the everyday person, right? It's the, the nurse, the dentist, the graduate student, the stay-at-home mom, right? The everyday person. Um, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Holly Jacobs. Um, Holly just graduated from Boston College um, in 2008, and she started graduate school. She grew up in Florida, so she went to FIU to get her PhD. And she had this long-term relationship with a boyfriend from college. Um, and during her first year in graduate school, they break up. And about three months after their breakup, she starts getting texts and emails by strangers saying they saw her advertisement and they're interested in sex and where can they meet, right? And at the time, she wasn't in the habit 
of Googling her name, which now, of course, is second nature for all of us, right, Who, if you want to know what's going on with your reputation. Um, but she Googled her name, and what she found was, was pretty terrifying. There are over 300 revenge porn, porn and adult sort of singles finder sites with her, her, her full name, nude photos, a video that her ex had made sort of surreptitiously of them having sex, one of her masturbating, which can you imagine the embarrassment, um, her home address, her work bio, so linked to her work bio so it's clear where she worked, um, her cell phone number, um, and some of the taglines said that she was interested in sex like an ad, right? And others said hot for teacher, Holly and her former last name sleeps with her students, right? So Holly was in this PhD program and as part of that program she taught students, right? We know the graduate students here, right? You teach undergrads. Um, and um, she was, was devastated, right? So besides uh, getting all of these unsolicited contacts from strangers saying they wanted to have sex with her and they saw her, you know, the ad, which is terrifying enough, someone sent an email to her part-time employer. She was working at a consulting firm part-time. Um, and the email looked like it came from her. So Holly underscore her former last name at yahoo.com. And what was included in the email were links to the nude photos and ads, right? And her dean of, dean of student life at FIU received anonymous phone calls and emails that accused her of sleeping with her students, right? So a dean calls her into the office and is like, what is going on, right? And she has to go through this whole embarrassing explanation. And her dean sort of, um, her advice was change your name, right? Because I can't have a graduate student teaching students that then can Google you and this is what they see, even though you had, of course, nothing to do with this stuff, right? Um, and Holly, so I'm talking about her in her now new adopted name, and I can explain the sort of glorious reason why I can talk about her in her full name, because now she runs the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and Anti-Harassment Advocacy Group. She's amazing. She's sort of the, um, these kind of like, I have these women like Brianna and Holly in my life who I feel like, God, what a gift, you know, that, that you can do this and be an advocate and move on in a way that so many people can't, right? Um, but Holly tried to, she got in touch with, best she could. It's like 300 sites. So most of the sites totally ignored her request, even though, as she explained, I own the copyright in the photos and videos. She sent a notice and takedown under the DMCA. And most of the sites ignored her. Why? Because it's on the theory of sue me, right? There's, no, there's nothing automatic about penalties under DMCA. So they just ignored her. There are some sites, of course, that wrote back and said, well, we'll take down the nude photos if you pay us $400. Right, and as a graduate student, you can only imagine her sort of feeling. And the fascinating thing, there were a couple of sites that took down the photos, and they were in Russia. Like, she was like, God bless these folks. Like, who knew, right, uh, this sort of loving response from someone in Russia. Um, but it was a kind of experience in frustration. Um, you know, and, and the stories like this, they're just not unique, right? So for years, as I talked about this work, the response to me was, ah, get over yourself, calm down. Kathy Sierra, Anita Sarkeesian, that's unusual, right? But, but the answer is it's not unusual, right? That, that it's estimated, this is a 2006 study from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, that over 850,000 people experienced some form of cyber stalking in the way that I initially defined it for all of us. Um, and that number is clearly growing. So I don't know if you guys saw the recent Pew report um, but it was estimated, this rolled out in the fall, 
that for women in their 20s, that it's estimated that there's a that 20% of women in their 20s will experience some form of cyber stalking in the way that I've defined it or cyber gender harassment, right? Um, and it's true that the majority of victims are female, but men experience cyber stalking and harassment too, and it follows the same playbook, right? It's sexually humiliating and sexually threatening. So it's not just any old threat, right? But it's threat of rape or anal rape for men or impersonations that suggest someone's gay and that they're interested in anonymous anal rape, right? Um, it's not just lies, but sexually humiliating lies, that someone has, a, has an STD, that they're a prostitute, that they're available for sex, right? And it's not just any old privacy invasion, but often the posting of nude photos, along with personally identifiable information. So, you know, I'm, I'm a law professor, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the law, right? You know, what can law do right now, right? Um, it can't do everything, but it can do something, right? So let's talk about what it could do, right, and what it needs, I think, to do. We have some work to do as well um, for reform efforts. Okay, so um, victims could potentially sue their harassers for a variety of tort claims, so like, I don't know, I know I have two lawyers in the audience for sure, only because they're my friends and I made them come, right? So I won't call on anyone, but I know that we have, right, intentional infliction of emotional distress, defamation, public disclosure of private fact, right? We know that we can bring civil tort claims against harassers. Fabulous in theory, right? But as a practical matter, it's incredibly expensive to sue, right? And even if you have the resources and you can get pro bono counsel, it's often true that harassers don't have deep pockets. They're just judgment proof, right? They just have very few assets. It's just not worth your time and energy suing them. And we know that, because this must be sacrosanct, I'm at MIT, but we know that platforms are immune from liability for the postings of others for user-generated content under the Communications Decency Act. So there isn't a deep pocket to sue unless the site operator is co-developing the tortious you know, content. Okay, so what about criminal law, right? So often people say to me, oh, we've got to write whole new swaths of laws, and that's totally untrue, right? We have threat, stalking, and harassment laws on the books that we can enforce today, right? Um, but part of the problem, there's like a two-part problem here. Part of the problem is, is under enforcement, right? So victims go to law enforcement. This is so often true at state, the state and local level. And because officers are just unfamiliar with the technology and unfamiliar with the law, they say, ah, turn your computer off, right? Ignore it. It's the, what Dan, we were talking about before, like slash ignore, right? It's the, it's because it's really hard, I think, as you talk to local law enforcement, it's hard when you have to admit you don't know something and you don't know kind of where to start in terms of where do I begin my investigation? How do I get a warrant? It's really not even that deep, right? And so part of my work with the Attorney General of California is to work on training. They have like 12,000 peace officers training law enforcement officers for a checklist. Like, this is what I have to do. It's just not that complicated, but they need to know what to do, what those steps are, right? Um, you know, the second part of the problem is true that we have, at least at the state level, a serious need for reform. So in 40% of states, harassment and stalking laws don't cover abuse that's posted on third-party sites. It only will cover abuse that's sent directly perpetrator to victim. So case from New York um, against a man, Ian Barber, 
who had um, his girlfriend confided in him uh, nude photographs, and they sort of shared with each other. Um, when they broke up, he posted her nude photo on Twitter. He sent them to her employer. He sent them to everyone in her sort of email inbox. Um, the state charged him with aggravated harassment, but it was immediately dismissed. Why? Because the aggravated harassment statute in New York, written in the early 1990s, only covers abuse communicated directly to the victim, right? This was her photo, so like sending it to her, that would not have been harassing, right? So we've got to update our state harassment laws. Um, and it's also true that in 32 states, it's not a crime to invade someone's sexual privacy by posting their nude photos in, in violation of their trust and confidence, right? Um, so we do have some work to do. Um, but fundamentally, and, and, and I think, TL, that's the heart of my book argues is that though we ought to understand online harassment as torts, as crimes, we, we must understand them as civil rights violations, right? So when the cyber mob goes after Anita Sarkeesian, right, why? What motivates them, right? What do they know about her but that she's a woman who dares to write about sexism and gaming, right? Um, and when we target someone and try to take away their fundamental life opportunities simply because that they are a member of a protected group, that's what we understand as a civil rights violation. Um, Amanda has put it so eloquently in Slate. She said, when, when I was threatened on Twitter and told that people were going to rape me and cut my head off and sexually violate me, what they were saying wasn't just to me but to all women that they can't be at ease writing and being a journalist online. Um, and, but we have a ways to go in terms of updating our state and federal civil rights law. right? Um, we can do this all within the confines of the First Amendment. You know, so often I'm asked, Danielle, it's like ones and zeros. We can't regulate the internet. It's like the internet. I've, apparently for years I've been breaking the internet and I didn't even know. But I'm glad it's still here, right? We can regulate this speech, right? The First Amendment does not operate in absolutes. It's true that we widely protect speech. Why? Because we want to give breathing room. Um, for robust conversation, public conversation, right? And we don't want government discriminating based on content. We don't want government as our censor, right? But there are certain categories of speech that the Supreme Court has long held either gets no protection, and that includes true threats, the defamation of private individuals, and crime facilitating sp speech like solicitation and extortion, right? Um, and speech that is given less rigorous protection, like laws that regulate and protect private communications about purely private matters. Why? Because it fosters private expression. OK, so there's stuff law can do, right? We shouldn't give up on it. But we do know that law is a blunt instrument, right? It moves slowly, right? We've got to nudge people to use it. Um, and in the meanwhile, I've been working with companies, and companies have been working on this issue, right? But, but they have a ways to go in terms of how they work on the question of online harassment and stalking, right? So where should they begin? If they were interested, do they have to do anything? Absolutely not, right? We have an entire industry of revenge-born operators. Why? Because they enjoy immunity from liability, and they do have no responsibility for user-generated content, right? But if they wanted to, I know that revenge-born operators, frankly, they don't like me. So there's no way they're ever going to listen to me, at least not on Twitter. They don't like me. Um, but what should, right? Um, Online, online providers do, what should they do, or what have they done, right? They gotta take a stand, 
right? So post-Gamergate, I have to say, like immediately I was pretty disappointed. I wanted to hear like the big shots at the very big gaming companies, right? Take a stand, say, this is not okay. I mean, right away, don't wait, right? This is not okay, right? What helped us address drunk driving was the campaign Mothers Against Drunk Driving. You guys are too young, frankly, to remember this. But, but when I grew up, I have to say, so I'm 46, right? You grow up and drunk driving is not in our, it, we know people do it, but it isn't something that's like baked into you can't do this, right? Mothers Against Drunk Driving starts in the 80s. And now, as my kids say to me, these high schoolers, they're like, mom, no one drinks and drives. Like the message is there, we get this, right? It's like baked into who we are now, I think, I hope, right? Um, at least much more so than I have to say, than you know, in the 80s and 70s, right? Um, and we've got to, if online platforms take a stand and say online harassment, threats, and stalking, you know, isn't okay, and we make that clear in their community guidelines in terms of service, they've got to a be clear about what they mean by those terms. Don't be loosey goosey. Don't say harassment and stop there. Explain what you mean by that term, right? Make clear to users expectations so they can set and understand site norms, right? And explain to users what happens if they violate the terms of service and community guidelines. And not only have clear repercussions, and it doesn't mean removal of the speech, it means whatever it is, be clear about it and provide a means of appeal or redress, like forms of due process. Why? Because look what happened to Anita Sarkeesian, right? We've got false, we've got abuses of the abuse system, right? Uh, and I know that there are a number of companies that are working really hard, like Microsoft's Xbox Live and others, that are working really hard on getting enforcement right and providing a sense of fairness. Um, and designers, as we are creating systems, build security and privacy and protections into your system at the front end. To like t slap them on later, it's just a misfit, right? So we see Yik Yak all of a sudden, like they're, you know, oh, ooh, oh really, they're threats on our anonymous app? No kidding. Now, oh, we're gonna ban them. Um, but they're not really, it's not a meaningful move. Um, and we can talk a little bit in Q&A why that's so, right? They don't have an enforcement system. They don't explain. They rely on users to sort of downvote or upvote. But what if your user community in that one and a half mile radius is pretty destructive, right? It's going to remain up. Um, but I think companies are signaling, at least in the last couple of weeks, right, that they're interested, they care. I don't care how long it took. I've been nudging them for years. God bless, right? We, I think we're making some sort of movement here in a way that I have to say was a little depressing for years getting like, oh yes, we really care, we really, you know, but doing nothing publicly. And I think coming forward, having the pressure of the glorious Attorney General of California, we had a meeting in which she basically had a bully pulpit convening. It was mostly Silicon Valley players and a few of us kind of explaining the problem. And two weeks <coughs> later, we had the announcement of the ban of non-consensual pornography and pretty clear guidelines. So you know it can work. We can have some hope that the law and law enforcement and top cops can do something. Um, but I always think, like, let's not despair, right? We have been here before, right? In the 1960s and 70s, you know, women were told in the workplace about sexual harassment, get over yourself. It's your fault. Like, you looked way too good in that skirt. What'd you think, right? And if you don't like it, you should leave, right? And then law stepped in. And we started to understand, just culturally, that it wasn't okay, that women shouldn't have to leave, like just as women shouldn't have to you know, close down their blogs or websites to plug out, right, if they didn't like abuse. 
Um, and I think we can make the same shift today. It's going to take some work. But if you think about the, we're certainly early on in our history of network tools. Um, we can certainly do it. Um, and I think it's something we all kind of need to do together as digital citizens. Um, so thanks so much. And more importantly, we're going to hear Bianca speak. Great, have fun. That was can wonderful. Thank I, you. Can you I take your seat? Are you yeah, no, no, or? I'm going to stand up. I want to watch you, so all i right, got to sit right, somewhere I can watch you. Actually, uh, is this my corking? Do you want me to run the... Uh, yeah, so when I met my husband, uh, he ran my projector. I ran his projector the weekend I met him, so he is going to run mine now for me. Just take a seat, sweetie. Awesome. So, uh, you know, before we even uh, before we get into this, I have to follow up on some of the things you're saying. Um, yes, <laughs> yes to every bit of it. You know, and as we're as we're talking about this, you're solving this problem. We have a word in engineering; it's multifactorial. Um, problems sometimes have multifactorial causes, and they have multifactorial solutions. So. You know, something that's really important as we're working to solve online harassment, we need a wide variety of people working on this. And what I particularly appreciate about you is there's no one else working today on the legal front with as much public visibility really getting the message out. And I just wanted to thank you for that personally. That's a huge, a huge part of this. I also want to say my voice is going today, so I'm going to push through this. It may lead to some really uh, vivid like reading of some of my death threats that I've gotten, but we'll, we'll move through this as best as we can. So my name is Brianna Wu. I'm head of development at Giant Space Cat. Um, you know, I'm not a feminist critic. I'm a software engineer. I run a business. I acquire capital. I work with investors. Um, you know, basically, my job is to run a company. Um, what I found last year is myself really embroiled in a very personal way in Gamergate. So I'm going to tell you a bit of my story, tell you um, the abbreviated version of why I chose to get involved with this. Um, this is not a happy story at all. And it's very dire. And it's very important. So um, I think there's a really mistaken sense that Gamergate is something that started last year. Um, you know, the truth is, Gamergate, I feel like the forces around it really started in 2012 with Anita Sarkeesian. You were giving some background on this. Um, what she found when she launched Feminist Frequency is exactly what you're saying. Like the most horrible rape threats, death threats, just the most abusive behavior you can possibly imagine. You know, for myself, while I was watching that, um, I think every single woman in the game industry took note of that. And we started to wonder, like, what if that was me? And you know, the actual horror of it is it has become all of us with this, this what you called a playbook, as it keeps happening and it keeps happening. So you know, I just want to say, like, Anita Sarkeesian was kind of patient zero in the game industry. And we've seen these same tactics uh, expand to other people. So let's go to the next slide. Um, so I want to kind of run you guys down last year and what happened to me. So um, basically, the game industry had been burning for quite a while. Um, it felt like these kind of sexist incidents had gotten um, to be more and more frequent. The, um, you know, the abuse towards Ania Sarkeesian kind of started to spread to other women in the industry. Um, I'm not going to give you this woman's name because every single time I talk about her in a talk, she gets a new avalanche of the exact kind of abuse you're talking about. 
So, but long story short, this is a friend of mine in the game industry. Uh, she was a game journalist, someone I really, really respect. And I just have to say, there aren't that many prominent women in games to begin with. You know, like maybe 20, 30, 40 of us that are really, you know, kind of have a super public presence. She was one of them. So what happened is she sent out a tweet that year critiquing Giant Bomb. Um, if you're looking to hear, uh, Giant Bomb is a website that really only caters to a very specific kind of player. So if you want to hear from someone that is not white, don't go to Giant Bomb because they choose not to hire them. If you want to hear from women, don't go to Giant Bomb because they choose not to hire them. If you want to hear from transgender people, gay people, black people, Hispanic people, anyone, don't go to Giant Bomb because they have a long history of not hiring anyone that's not straight, white, cisgendered, and male. And yeah, this particular journalist in this industry, um, after Giant Bomb announced a new round of hires, again, with no diversity whatsoever by choice, um, she sent a single tweet critiquing them. So what happened to my friend? Um, exactly what you called the playbook. What did they do? They went through her life. They shamed her. Um, there was a wonderful quote you had, Danielle, that I wanted to use here. You said once, um, it's like you keep hearing the same story from women. It's like just hit rewind because they do it over and over again. And the actual reason they do what they do is to take the person, turn them into a monster, because then that justifies all the abuse that goes forward. So they did the playbook on my friend. They go through her past. They find something to attack her with, dehumanize her, attack, 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 threaten, threaten, threaten. I was watching her, her Twitter in this time period, and it was just nothing but threats against this woman who again is a journalist. This is not the highest paid profession on the entire planet. And you know, she took a step back and said, you know what guys, there are easier ways to make a living. I'm out. In our industry, lost one of our best and brightest voices that day. And you know, she's not coming back. So what kind of happened from there, I felt, was that these kind of misogynistic forces in the game industry realized that they had tactics that worked. So what happened in um, August of that year was the Zoe Quinn incident. Um, this is exactly what you were describing, Danielle. So what happened to this woman is absolutely terrible. Long story short, she had a uh, former boyfriend basically go through her entire relationship, get all the Skype logs, get all the Facebook Messenger logs, and release them online. Um, unsubstantiated, by the way, uh, for the entire public to see. He did it with the express purpose of, and this is a quote from him, like destroying her professionally. So, you know, what ended up happening to Zoe was, let's go to the next slide, is it's what I would call the most sexist incident in the entire history of video games. They were actually going after Zoe Quinn to destroy her as entertainment. So you have these people, they're going after Zoe Quinn, making up like allegations about her sex life that I'm not gonna repeat here. You know, again, it's the playbook. Dehumanize her, dehumanize her, justify the abuse. You know, Zoe Quinn is someone who has suffered from depression and has made an award-winning game that has helped millions of people understand their depression. And people for a long time have been tweeting things at Zoe, like even before Gamergate. I remember one time her getting a tweet that was like, oh, if you think you have depression, just go lay down in the middle of the street and somebody will make it better for you. Like, right? 
so what happens to this woman who is basically a depression-like activist, talking and getting people health care and self-care on this issue? What happens to her? She has the entire internet going after her. She has this scum from Firefly, Adam Baldwin, tweeting POS videos slandering her. Can you imagine that? Can you sit there for a minute and imagine what it would feel like for Zoe Quinn to have like a celebrity tweeting videos going after her private sex life? And we just ate this up as entertainment. I mean, I didn't, but like as the game industry itself is just loving this. This is all anyone would talk about. And it's, there's like this weird duality that happens when these incidents come up that people are outraged but it's kind of fun to be outraged and to talk about it. And they don't realize that they're still talking about this woman's you know, sex life. And then you have people there destroying her as entertainment. And it's like we as women get thrown into this public coliseum where we're just ripped apart. So, you know, just to take a little bit of a step back, where all this hatred is coming from with Gamergate is, you know, women and other minorities are getting a larger and larger say in our industry. In 1989, there was a study that came out. It showed that um, you know, women were only 3% of game players in 1989. As recently as 2008, we were up to 17% of game players. Um, as of this year, with the last study I saw, we are 52% of game players. So your average game player today in 2015 is not a teenage boy is a 36-year-old woman. That is a very different reality for our industry. And it's changing because of that. And Gamergate comes from a past where some people are feeling very threatened by this change in the industry, as if we all can't enjoy games together. So what Gamergate did is, all year long, they have started going after women I really care about professionally, one by one by one, with your playbook. They did it to Jen Frank. Jen Frank writes a piece for The Guardian. What did they do? They go through her past, find something to criticize, take it out of context, try to destroy her professionally. You can see her Twitter in this time period. It's just like this waterfall, waterfall of hate coming towards her. What does Jen Frank do? Again, she's a journalist. She's like, guys, there are easier ways to make a living. I'm out. Dev loses one of a handful of prominent women journalists. They did the same thing to Lee Alexander. She's still in the field, but you know, like she actually took a huge step back during this time period. They went after Maddie Bryce to the point where she ended up quitting, and my good friend Catherine Cross. They went after her in the exact same way. So I want for you to imagine what this is like for you know, not just me, but other women in this field. I mean, I'm here. I'm trying to run a company, right? Like. And it's like there's this huge intellectual overhead for everything I'm trying to do. Because like, running a game studio is hard, but I'm seeing my friends get picked off one by one by one by one. And we're all terrified that it's going to be us next. Like, that's what I can't emphasize to you enough, is the outcome of what you're talking about, the playbook, is terrorism for anyone else in the field. It has a huge silencing effect. And all we were talking about in the field this year is like, what should I say? What if they go after me? What's the best way to deal with this? And oh, no, it's fine. No, that's perfect. You know, this is what one of the women I just showed you was talking about um, during this time period uh, with Gamergate. We are not winning, and if we do win, it will be a pyrrhic victory. 
And she was absolutely right, because they came out with this playbook that worked against us. I have to tell you, like when I, I was so upset in this time period seeing them go after my friends one by one by one. If I end up ever quitting the industry, it's not going to be because like I have been harassed to the point where I have to leave. It's going to be because my heart is broken from seeing this happen to my friends over and over again. So I want to tell you the story about them going after me and what happened. So um, I have a podcast called Isometric. Um, the reason I started this podcast was um, I like games. And for a long time, it frustrated me that there were really no podcasts, prominent podcasts with uh, women. So uh, something I found over the, the course of my career is if something doesn't exist, um, you know, I go and build it myself. I did it with my studio because I was frustrated there weren't games with women protagonists. Um, I did it with Isometric. I followed the same formula later for Rocket. Um, so what I did um, was I had been critiquing Gamergate publicly. I didn't care if they went after me. I, I, was, I thought it was really important to speak to, right? So um, what a listener of my show, Isometric, did was took some of my tweets and basically made a meme out of them and thought that this was you know, hilarious. And you can see these. These are pretty general critiques of Gamergate, right? Fighting an apocalyptic future where women are 8% of programmers and not 3%. That is, by the way, what they're complaining about. In the game industry, only 3% of programmers are women. So, you know, I tweeted this out. And I could have never guessed that this tweet was going to change my life. So what happened because of this? Um, well, Gamergate starts, uh, basically, 8chan gets involved with this. 8chan is a hate site that is an offshoot of 4chan. So 4chan is so extreme, they will not allow two things at 4chan, child pornography and conversations about Gamergate. Like that's, that's all that they go, whoa, we can't do that. So um, basically, 8chan saw me tweet this meme and didn't think it was funny. So they did what they call shit posting, where they go through this meme base and spend the entire day generating thousands of memes attacking me. So I get this same meme set up, but where they're talking about raping me. They start talking about threatening me. They're talking about murdering me. Your exact playbook. Again, the goal is sexual humiliation. They're going after my, my looks, like anything they can. The goal is to dehumanize you. So what I did at this point was I really had a choice at that moment. What a lot of women had done was when Gamergate went after them, they just kind of you know, closed the MacBook and walked away for a while and chose to be silent. And again, that's completely fine. Like, this is a tactic that works. If you're silent, they kind of will sit there and attack you and it'll live out there in infamy, but it eventually goes away. And I had 24 hours with my husband, like, laying awake, really asking, like, what my character was. Like, was I going to stay silent and let them keep going after me? Or was I going to stand up for what I believed in? This was a real choice that I had. And I knew that if I kept speaking out, what happened to Zoe was going to happen to me again. And I thought through it, and I realized I couldn't live with myself if I stayed silent. So I came back, and I said, 
fuck you guys, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here, I'm going to keep making games. And that's where it really got nasty. I was actually watching 8chan, the, the board. It's weird that when you're the target of a ton of hate, um, you can't look away from it. So I was actually watching 8chan as they started running your playbook, going through my life, finding anything to attack, to dredge up against me, and um, they doxed me. And moments later, this came in. I'm going to read this out. This has some very serious language. Guess what, bitch? I now know where you live. You and Frank live at, there's my address. I've got a K-bar, and I'm coming to your house so I can shove it up your ugly feminist cunt. I'm going to rape your filthy ass until you bleed, then choke you to death with your husband's tiny Asian penis. How's that for terrifying, you stuck-up cunt? I'm sick of you fucking feminist asshats. Your mutilated corpse will be on the front page of Jezebel tomorrow, and there isn't jack shit you can do about it. If you have any kids, they're going to die too. I don't give a fuck. They'll grow up to be feminists anyway. I hope you enjoy your last moments alive on this earth. You did nothing worthwhile with your life. <sighs> so, this was the moment I called the police. I had had death threats and rape threats before. I've had men calling me on the phone masturbating just for wearing a studio full of women. But this is the moment that I did call the police. And they came by and they took a report and we can have a whole longer conversation about how ineffective they were. But, um, you know, it basically comes down to turn your electronic devices off for the rest of the evening. So Frank and I decided to leave our home. We didn't feel safe. What followed after that for me was a media firestorm. Danielle, you were talking about your frustration with game dev not kind of stepping up to the plate and saying this is wrong. Um, I've got to tell you, the insider truth of this, this situation is game dev had chosen to stay completely silent about what was happening to me and every other woman in this field for months and months and months and months. I was pissed. I mean, it makes me so frustrated. Here in Game Dev, you have a system where men fund the games, men run the game companies, men you know, lead the art teams, men design the games, men do the programming, men are the journalists, men own the companies that have the journalism. And they have all of the power there. And their continual reaction to every bit of Gamergate was silence to say nothing, to do nothing. And I had been thinking about this for a long time. I realized that waiting for IGN to do the right thing was never going to happen. Waiting for Giant Bomb, who chooses not to hire women, to do anything about this was never going to happen. Waiting for Game Informer to say something about this. By the way, they have 17 out of 18 of their editors are men. They're never going to comment on it. So I'm like, we have to go over their head. We have to get the New York Times involved. So after they started contacting me with media, I said yes. And you can see me the day after this. And I look like crap. Like my hair is a mess. I'm on MSNBC and CNN. And my eyes are bloodshot. And I pulled inside of myself because I realized like, I, this was my moment to change it to get people to start talking about what was happening to me and my friends. And we did. I did a tremendous amount of um, 
media over the next few months. Basically, name a major you know, media organization in the world. I did it or was mentioned in it. And I just kept repeating the same thing. Like, Gamergate is a hate organization. Gamergate is going after women one by one. And I just told my story, and I told the truth. So I do want to leave a little bit of time for questions. So I'm going I'm to move to the slide, and that's going to be it. But I just want to talk about this. Like, in the game industry, I think there's this misconception that the problem is not, the problem is it's just a bunch of teenage boys, right? It's just a bunch of teenage boys with access to the internet. By the way, on this computer, we have six cases built up against people, and it's not teenage boys. I'll tell you that. It's adult men. You know, I think in the game industry, you cannot have a field that has been this dominated by men for this long that makes a product that signals to this one particular player that they are the center of the universe, that makes women into you know, bimbos, over-sexualized like cartoons, damsels in distress. You cannot have this particular product shipped to these players for 30 years and not have them absorb some thoughts and concepts about how they should treat women. And you know, the truth is, for me in my professional life, like I don't want to censor dead or alive. I don't want to censor Grand Theft Auto. You know, I just want to go over here and create some new games for this new market. It is near impossible to do. So, you know, I think moving forward, you know, I'm so idealistic about this, it's almost <laughs> ridiculous. But I think like we've really got to stick together as women. You know, I think that it's going to require all of us. You know, I am a CEO. I'm very awesome in the business sphere. I have a particular role I can play behind the scenes. Like you talked about some of the changes at these big companies to get them to start changing their policies. You know, there are things I can do to talk to those people behind the scenes and bring about change. You as a lawyer, you are able to bring a legal perspective that I don't know anything about, frankly. And to advocate for these changes, because there is a we do need changes to jurisprudence, so you know, police can actually prosecute these laws or have training. We need figures like Anita Sarkeesian that are out there as powerful feminist activists and media critics, bringing this critique to the industry we desperately need. And more than anything, we need you. I want to say that again. We need you. Yeah. I run into this so much in the industry that people just like classify this as like a women's problem. But the truth is, like the women I know in the field are not the ones doing this stuff. Yeah, we need people to stand up and to say this is not acceptable anymore. We need the men out there that play games to understand it's not enough to like in your mind believe that women are equal. You have to realize that most of the things that happen to us are unconscious bias. When Game Informer chooses to hire 17 out of 18 of their editors as men, that's due to some unconscious bias. Like when they think about who the best person for that position is, they have an idea in their head of what that looks like, and it's not me, and it's not half the people on Earth. So we need all of us to kind of grow and change on this issue. So get involved. Don't stand for this anymore. <laughs> Thank you.
Uh, thank you both so much. That just really fantastic kickoff for hopefully now uh, we have some time for conversation and Q and A. And absolutely. So Gamergate has disrupted now three out of my last five talks. So I'm happy to answer tough questions. I want to clarify, Brianna Wu is not on trial here. So if we're talking about issues, that's fine. If you're going to talk about me, we're not going to do that. So yeah, I expect everybody in this room to behave with the utmost respect and dignity for everybody in this room. And I have no hesitation of kicking folks out if they don't. So all right. Name, if you like, or where you're from, something to give context. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Such a powerful talk. Um, you just were touching on this at the very end, but I wonder what you can tell me more about the people that are harassing. I don't really actually know the term to use, a polite term, <laughs> but um, I'm thinking kind of like of two categories. There's kind of this general nastiness that I see online. Um, just from kind of normal people, I think everyone assumes from the, they're just anonymous and they feel like they can do that. But this is like a, a totally different level. And I just wonder how much do you know about the people who are harassing, um, you know, I mean, everything, you know, ages, background. I mean, do they start out as kind of just nasty and that um, just through kind of a crowd function, they sure. take it to this next level? So thank you. Um, is my mic still on? Great. Um, so I'm going to be speaking very generally here. Um, I think you have to look at the totality of this situation. So you do have the, the extreme people that do send the death threats and things like that. But I think it's important to also think about the entire system that enables them. And the truth is you have a lot of gamers out there that feel very resentful about the feminists coming and taking away their video games, you know? And um, you know, they are out there, and even if you're not tweeting me death threats, what hurts me the most personally is logging on Twitter every day and getting hundreds of messages about how terrible a person I am, to get terrible emails, to get anytime my company announces something, to have that product announcement turned into a soup of sewage in the comments. So, but if we want to talk about the most extreme examples, I mean, they are people that seem divorced from any sense of empathy. Yeah, they don't see me as a person. And yeah, there's something I've noticed that if you listen to Anita or Zoe and I talk about these people, um, you know, I, I could say truly, I do have empathy for how they feel. I obviously don't agree with it, but I understand that they feel persecuted in a way that they don't understand. And I think like, I think it's unhelpful to define them as monsters. Does that make sense to you? It's a more complex social problem. What do you think? Um, I think that's right. I'm always asked that. Yeah. Who are these people? Yeah. Right. And some of the difficulty is that because law enforcement doesn't investigate, right. it's often unclear who people are, right? And because it's incredibly expensive, digital forensic expertise is expensive, and individuals can't afford to bring lawsuits. It's hard to nail down, certainly in a cyber mob, who all these people are, right? I mean, um, about 40% of online harassment and stalking cases will stem from domestic abuse or begin there. But then all of a sudden, it's this mob of people, so this one upmanship. And um, you know, in my book, I talk about the different ways in which our network tools can kind of bring out the best and the worst in us. 
right? And am anonymity is a beautiful thing, right? For the domestic violence survivor, the, you know, um, the gay teen who wants to come out is just not kind of sure about who does, who's safe to talk to. Um, but at the same time, that kind of de-individuation that lets us be so honest also can let us be our most destructive, right? Um, and when we are in a crowd, right, we tend to shift to the most extreme views because it seems acceptable. And certainly as we're seeing all this unfold on Twitter, it seems like a one-upmanship game, right? And when individuals are identified and caught and sued, so often the response is, the internet got the best of me. I would never, ever have done this if I were face-to-face -face with this person. I have no idea why I did this, but I ruined someone's life in two seconds and I'm an idiot, you know? So, um, and the internet facilitates sort of groups that wouldn't, they're not, ge they're geographically dispersed, right? So there is this kind of power, um, and I think it, it, the answer isn't that everyone's a sociopath. Yeah. It can't be, no. right? It, then there's too many of them. It's <laughs> so scary. I'm not going outside or letting my children go to college, right? Like, forget about it. It can't be, right? So that these tools can bring out really kind of our worst selves in ways that we would never really ever do if we were face to face to someone. And sometimes it's the like ups, because you know, you're getting attention from other people and they're like, props to you for being an asshole. So sorry, whoops, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't curse. Um, right, so um, I, I don't think there's an easy answer, right? And there is a literature, like a social psychology literature about stalking that we can borrow from. So I'm a law professor, I'm gonna say there's a literature, right? I am no social psychologist, or, right? So I wanna stay in my zone of expertise. Yeah. Um, we can borrow from it, we can learn from it, but we also, I think, so TL, you were saying, like, think about how these network tools affect the conversation and they have to be part of it, right, and how they impact our behavior. Absolutely. Can I ask a, I ask a follow up on that just because yeah. you use the word? Prerogative? Yeah, moderation prerogative. Yeah. We yeah. do that all the time. <laughs> well, because I know, you know, often in this conversation, the question comes up about the anonymity issue. And I know Catherine Cross, if you aren't familiar with Catherine's work, she's awesome. written some fantastic stuff about around this issue of anonymity and that anonymity is probably not a sufficient or even the right answer. And I know, Danielle, you've written about this as well. Can you, can you all jump in and give us some more thoughts about this issue of anonymity and how this plays a role or, or it's very simple the the role of anonymity scientifically is entirely over prescribed as a cause of this I mean look look in the mirror this is this is us right and you know something I find continually in talking about sexism in the game industry like I've been doing this for years I've been doing this before Gamergate I've never walked up to a man that said you know Brianna I'm part of the problem it's always these other guys right and you know the truth is it's all of us um, just to speak a little bit to the anonymity issue they've done studies about what the tones tone of comments are when you have your Facebook logged in so you have to put your actual name to it and the tone of those comments is not substantively different than what it is anonymously so I'll leave that. It's just not that simple, yeah, right? Yeah, it's not that. None of this is simple. If it was simple, we'd solve it. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. yeah. Hi. <clears throat> Thank you for doing this and doing this talk, both of you. Um, I'd like to sort of understand the lack of police response. Um, you know, I, I mean, you talk to I mean, you talk to domestic 
violence advocates, and they've been saying for years, well, the police don't understand the technology. But, you know, there's certainly been plenty of time to apply for the grants to get the in-service training. Um, and, you know, the, the other contrast I want to draw, because we are at MIT, is um, Aaron Schwartz, where, you know, downloading um, academic papers, you know, went from a, finding something in, an, in a network closet to the Secret Service in, you know, less than two or three hours. So it's not, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't feel like, you know, accepting that, well, they just don't know, you know, and that shouldn't be acceptable to us as a, you know, the, the society that creates the police force. Say my response to it is, look, law enforcement individually, I'm very, I don't want to sound like I'm blasting police officers in general. Like there's a lovely police officer here that's making sure I'm safe today, you know? So I, I just, I think it's really important to take a step and to show respect to, to those people that do that job. Um, I think it's a problem of a system where whose responsibility it is, is very unclear. So I live in Arlington. You know, understandably, the Arlington police are more preoccupied with keeping local civil order than doing IP traces and finding these harassers. So then they point me to the Massachusetts Cyber Crimes Division. Massachusetts Cyber Crimes Division kind of shrugs and says, this is up to the FBI. What was your quote there? There are 15,000 FBI agents, and it seems like none of them are currently tasked with prosecuting these crimes. Um, so it's, it's ultimately a, a question of priority, right? You talked to Aaron Schwartz, which is somewhat exogenous, but you know, this is a case where they wanted to take action. And I think this kind of ties into patriarchy to a certain extent, that we're told that the problems of men are society's problems, but the problems of women are like women's problems. And I feel like there's not the sense that it's important for law enforcement to get involved with. Yeah, I think that's where we need you to, like, we need to work to give you support with, you know, the women that are high profile on this to get laws passed so that, you know, prosecuting attorneys can take action on this. Right. Yeah. So, um, so you're absolutely right that we're part of, it is part of the same playbook and story. And so I work really closely with the National Network to End Domestic Violence who have been working with training the trainers on the technology, the safety net program since well, 15 years, right? And I, and I gave a talk about cyber civil rights, my early work on this in 2008. So we have been talking about this problem and training law enforcement who come to these talks, but there are just too few of them there, right? And so part of it is a funding problem that is putting, re devoting resources to training both on the technology and the law. And maybe, right, at the federal level, we don't need to pass new laws. We have some pretty terrific laws at the federal level but having federal agents train and provide that technical support that they have, if they're not gonna enforce the federal cyberstalking statute, right, and threat laws, then help support state and local law enforcement do that, right? Um, so the statistic that, Brianna, you were thinking about is between 2010 and 2013, from all publicly available records, um, and my work with one very exceptional assistant U.S. attorney in California, I found that there were 10 prosecutions under the federal cyber stalking law. 10 in three years? Like, that's incredibly small, right, guys? Right? And there are only, and this is from the Bureau of Justice Statistics databases, 
um, 30 prosecutions under the federal threat law a year. 30? Yeah. Like, we came up with 30, 30 names. We got 30, 30. right here. Like, yeah. here we go, PowerPoint, right? So um, it is a serious problem of, I think, training, enforcement, and top cops like E.G. Harris standing up and saying, no, no, right? And we're going to really devote time and energy to training peace officers. Um, and then so you asked the question also about discretion and how just so utterly bewildering it is that we threw a ton of federal resources prosecuting Aaron Schwartz over, are you joking me, right? Um, and yet we have you know, people's livelihoods who are really destroyed and threatened yeah. and we're paying no attention. Yeah. Um, and we see that justice can be really twisted. Yeah. And that discretion, and that's why I think I share common cause with those who say, you know, be careful what you want, Danielle. Like, you know, you want law enforcement involved, but, but we got to be really cautious, right? Because we see justice take really perverted and strange turns, right? Yeah. So that the revenge porn victim is prosecuted for lying to the police because she's embarrassed, but not the perpetrator. Like, I have a lot of these stories in my books where justice is so, it's just so wrong. And KY Anonymous is prosecuted because he figured out who the rapists in Steubenville, Pennsylvania were. He's thrown in jail, but not the rapist. That just makes no sense to me, right? But I think we can't give up on the law. We don't want to be in a state of nature, right? Hobbes was right. So, so I'm, I want us to bring some discipline, thoughtfulness, training, right, to that effort. Yeah. Hi, Brianna, the people who are harassing you and harassing Anita and the other women you're talking about, they seem to be operating under this fundamentally wrong assumption that somehow if there are more games that appeal to feminists and to women in general, that there's going to be fewer games that appeal to men. Where does this, sounds stupid when you say it that way, where does that come? <laughs> Where, where does that come from, and, how, and why do people think like that? Entitlement. I mean, the game industry has told a certain kind of player that they are the center of the universe for, for years now. Um, you know, if you come over to my house, I can show you my bookshelf. If we went through and just, like, took every game where it wasn't, like, a white man starring in the game or the woman involved weren't over-sexualized or weren't a damsel in distress, there would only be like a handful of games. And I have like probably, Frank, how many games do you think we have at home? Four or 500, oh, something like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. But, right, so my, my point is this one player has been told, it, there's so many things in video games that have this underlying um, message, like saying like, hey, you're a dude. Like everything from like, when I play Mass Effect, which is a wonderful game, like, you know, I play as Femshep, and I'm relating to the characters in that game as, like, women that I respect professionally as I'm on my, my mission. And then what do they do? They get this worm's angle view of Miranda's butt to beautifully frame it, you know, as if to say, like, hey, we know you're probably a heterosexual dude, and this is something you're going to like. And there are a million messages like that in games all the time. It's exhausting to be a woman playing games. So... You know, the entire industry tells this person that they're the center of the universe. So anything deviating from that, like when the culture starts to shift, and you have people like, you know, Anita saying, can we look at some of these tropes? Or if you have people like me saying, look, can we get a few more women reviewers? Can we get, like, a few more women CEOs? Can we make sure we have women leading the art teams? Like, that feels very threatening to them. So, you know, it's, it's ultimately entitlement. I know, yeah. 
Yeah. So well said. Yay. Hi, my name's Nina. Thank you, um, Brianna and Danielle. Danielle, I have a question for you. Um, it, it's a legal question, but it's about perhaps the contradiction of principles. The law seems to need someone to prosecute in particular. And this isn't about anonymity. This is a question about mob. If one person retweets and they only have perhaps one account for which they can be prosecuted, that seems pretty small, probably not even worth doing. But in actuality, if you have 10,000 people doing one tweet, well then someone like Brianna is actually re receiving 10,000, not one. So how do you deal with the mobness of it? And, and I say that also knowing from knowing a little bit about what's been happening to Brianna over the, over the months, that oftentimes it actually is the same people. So that, that certainly, you know, it often is the same people. So there isn't just one account here. Um, there's many. But I, I still would like to hear you talk about that problem of, of mobs and collectives, I guess, collectives in a very negative way. Thanks. I take that up in my book because sort of one of the, well, two of the three narratives that kind of animate my book, Kathy Sierra and a law student targeted on auto-admit, were very much crowdsourced mob behavior, right? Yeah. And the problem is when you have definitions of harassment, which rightfully are defined as a course of conduct, meaning repeated, right, persistent, a one-off tweet, even though it's like little bee stings. One bee sting, eh, not so bad. But when you have a million bee stings, it's incredibly powerful for the victim. But any given perpetrator isn't responsible for harassment or stalking, right? So the problem is very much like we're not going to be able to get them on conspiracy charges. They just don't have the mens rea. The kind of needed agreement, explicit agreement to so prosecute them. And so this is the kind of thing where law may not be able to step in, but that's where social norms, moderators, and you know, site operators, I think, need to step in. Well, how about right? political pressure behind the scenes? Like you, you yeah. mentioned, the problem with Twitter. Like this is a problem you can somewhat solve by saying if you ban someone from an IP address, right. like require them to come back with a more strict authentication way, like make them enter a phone number or something else. That's something Twitter can enact, and I think that's right. where it becomes a multifactorial solution because maybe law can't get involved with that, but you can have people like me. Like, you know, I've had conversations with Twitter behind the scenes saying, I need you to make this engineering change. So it's like we need this full tool of women that are involved in this issue to bring the solutions to bear that we can. Right. So, and I think anonymity as a privilege yeah. to be lost is something I argue in the book and I think yeah. would be incredibly helpful because once oh, yeah. you've signaled mm -hmm. that you are going to gauge in torts and crimes, you know what? Bye bye anonymity. Yep. Like I'm not so worried about you as a political dissenter, yeah. right? So yep. I think that no, no. Please ask the follow up. I, I didn't mean to dissuade you from it. Um. When you said that conspiracy, sorry. When you said that you know it's hard to get them on conspiracy, it immediately made me think of Reddit, yep. right? And more yep. importantly, HN, yep. where there are these moments where you can see a plan being hatched well, and that we can right? yeah so i'm I mean, wondering if that comes true in. right so um there are instances where you do see in threads that don't disappear right okay i'm putting it back on yeah no 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 i just i did that okay ah classy all right um the the you can, if indeed there is a record of what looks like a true agreement like 
This is how you conduct, conduct a Google bomb. You do exactly this. Did you follow my instructions? Yes, I did. Now look, the bitches, blah, 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 is up and that's prominent. That looks and feels like a prosecutor's dream, right? So if you do have in context actual evidence, maybe there's emails between perpetrators, right? You do, but you need to start investigating. You need a warrant, you gotta, right? You can't elude process. You need to get a warrant and go figure out, but you gotta start an investigation. I mean, we never even kind of get to the plate. It's almost, it's a very theoretical argument. I don't mind making it, and I do in the book, right? But a lot of this is, in theory, what can law do, right? We've got a lot of tools, we have to use them. But I think you're absolutely right. If we have that kind of evidence, then we may very well have grounds to argue conspiracy, as we, do, we saw in the Hunter Moore case, right? Hunter Moore and the guy he hired to hack all these women and steal their nude photos, it was based on their emails and texts between each other, right? And they prosecute him, God bless my friend in California, Wes who, and they did, and he's going to jail. I mean, he's going to prison, see you later, right? But that was on conspiracy. But we needed to investigate to get the emails and the texts, and they did. Uh, thank you so much. I want to start by saying, Brianna, thank you so much for sharing the story of what happened with you. Um, I can't imagine that was easy. I, um, I was very angry. I was, so, I was yeah. feeling that, and I was feeling for you, and you've completely changed how I see this issue. So thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, in terms of, um, of finding a meaningful question, uh, so I, um, <laughs> I think uh, what's, what's interesting is what you actually just alluded to, which is this idea of engineering changes within platforms and how those can be part of the conversation. I have heard the hypothesis put forward uh, that to an extent, certain amounts of you know, outrage are positive for these yeah. platforms from a user numbers perspective, and they, you know, they, they, so they, there's this sort of disincentive to clamp down on some of this behavior. Right. And I would love to hear some of your experiences. What are some of the particular engineering changes that you've noticed could be implemented? And in general, what has been the response from the platforms? Do you feel like they are not eager to engage in this and do this? Sure, I think that's a great question, by the way. Um, I want to take a very quick step back from your question and say one of the reasons I fight so hard for women in tech is this is a question going forward of who gets to build the future. So, you know, I don't know, but I would guess a lot of the students here probably spend more time on Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or you know, Instagram than you do at your student center, right, talking to people. So I think it's a really important question, who's building those spaces? And I think if you look at products that have been built by more women, like for instance, say, um, oh, you know, um, oh God, what's the name of it? It's the favorite site. It's, I'm, I'm completely blanking, I'm sorry. There, there are some sites that have had more women involved with them from the ground up. There are some that have not, like Twitter. And I think you see their failure to respond to that. I think it, it's very much born of culture where they're not thinking about these things. I guarantee if they'd had more women working as engineers at Twitter from the ground up, I think the very paradigm would have changed because this is something you can fix from an engineering perspective. So um, with Twitter, what I want to see are some very specific changes when I talk to them. Um, I want to see them make it possible so if I, can turn a checkbox off, and if someone's created their account in less than 30 days, that goes away. 
I want to see them clamp down on re-verifying people that have been banned from the same IP address. Um, and I want to see them you know, get serious. They've been doing a lot of shadow banning lately, which I really appreciate, which is when they have an algorithm to figure out that this user, generally speaking, only harasses people. So they can tweet and tweet and tweet and tweet, but I don't see it. It's been great using Twitter since that happened because I see a lot less of it. Over on Reddit, you know, I was having a chat with Reddit the other day. Um, yeah, they've actually, they, they care. They care. I don't like seeing Reddit criticized because I think Ellen Powell has been a hero for a lot of women for many reasons. Um, you know, they made it so non-consensual pornography cannot be, like, you know, shared there. And I think that's a good change. I'd like to see that expanded. Um, right now, there's no rule against, like, say, um, outing someone transgender, which can be a life or death situation there. Like, you, know, you talked about dehumanizing people. That's something you see them doing a lot, like turning, like questioning the person in that way. So I would like to see that change. I think there's just a whole range of things that I'd like to see them change. But the ultimate answer for this, like the 30,000-foot solution, is right here at MIT. It's getting more women involved in managing these companies and making these decisions. Because the outcome is going to look very different at that point. So what do you think? No, I think we're making some progress, yeah. right? So, so um, you know, some of those changes that I think they're listening to, though, a little bit, yeah. a little more than you're saying, right? Because yeah. Twitter, isn't it true that when you have one-sided like that is when you have tweets that are only one-sided, that's a flag and yep. they may ban, right? Yep. So they recently rolled out a new code yep. of conduct, so she's making waves, yep. right? Um, you know, companies, I think, are sh sort of shy to share their internal discussions, but their internal discussions are working on, even though it's kind of stapling it on now, um, unlike Xbox One, which is they built in security, privacy, and a whole system of enforcement in building Xbox One, because they already had a pretty profound team, right? Um, I think this will be baked into future products, I hope, unless we wake up and fall asleep, and we would be very unhappy about that. But yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. We're going to win. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Again, heartfelt thank you to both of you for speaking today. Um, can't uh, can't really express how thankful I am that these topics are being addressed. Um, and I was I want to know a little bit more. Uh, we're talking about a playbook constantly that these guys are using, and I was wondering if we can kind of look into history to pick out an analogous historical situation to we as feminists make our own playbook, something that we can either support each other to enact change or look at these situations and say the sexual harassment, um, so you mentioned that that law got involved. And I'm wondering if you think that it was more the culture of the workplace changing first and law stepping in, or did law step in and then the culture of the workplace changed around it? And I, I just wanted to hear a bit more about that and maybe some things we can do together. Of the book, right, is to the past helps us move forward today. Um, and when it, you know, for sexual harassment in the workplace, it was this convergence of law and legal theory coming together at the same time. So Catherine McKinnon writes this exquisite um, uh, sexual harassment for the working women, and Lynn Farley writing these great pieces where they explain, like, this is what's going on, it's really not so okay. And women's groups had all these clients coming into them, and they started bringing cases, and they educated judges. Right, that initially late 60s were like, oh, 
it's just personal nonsense. Like, it's too messy. We can't get involved. Never recognizing claim for sexual harassment or quid pro quo, like, you have to sleep with me or you're not getting this job. Rejecting claims that it was sexual discrimination under Title VII. And then Catherine McKinnon and a kind of slew of lawyers, right, educating judges, and especially on the DC Circuit, two big decisions that said, you know what? actually sex discrimination and sort of changing hearts and minds. And so part of that is, yes, those are lawsuits that are brought, but it's also talking to the news. So we saw increased coverage, right, of these problems. True, this We see the same story in domestic violence. And what, what really turns the tide, not just law, right, but when Anita Hill, you're way too young, okay, but it was 19, I will never forget this, coming home from law school, turning on the TV, right, and seeing the, the Thomas hearings. And Anita Hill testifying about how, when she worked at the EEOC, um, now Justice Thomas said to her, like, have you watched these porn films? Can't we watch them together? And her feeling incredibly uncomfortable. And the stony faces of everybody on the Judiciary Committee, like, and then the anger that it seemed clearly directed at her. Basically, she was discredited, right? But I have to say that seriously, three weeks after she testifies, the EEO receives hundreds of thousands of complaints of sexual harassment in the workplace. So it went from like the problem we cannot say we have to the problem we decide screw it, we're going to say it, right? And it's amazing. Um, so sometimes it is these kind of what I view as these public moments that we saw this summer. Brianna wrote this gorgeous, compelling op-ed that when I read it, I was like, this is what we need. Like yours and Jennifer Lawrence's piece is for the um, Vanity Fair, I was like, hearing these stories very publicly, not just from academics, from people who are so eloquently talking about their own stories in ways that are really deeply moving. That's like the Anita Hill analogy, right? Uh, that maybe we tell these stories, we talk to the press, all of us, we are bystanders, right, aren't we? Often on Twitter, and we say, are you joking me? Right, so maybe it is this many-pronged attack where we do need law, we need more we need more of Attorney General Harris in every state, right? She just prosecuted two revenge porn operators for extortion. She's, one is going to jail for 17 years. She's another trial coming up in Santa Cruz. God bless her, right? But why not my state, <laughs> right? Why not any other state? Um, so I think we can put pressure on politicians and top cops because we elect them, these attorney generals, right? Um, and I think the more we kind of tell these stories and share them, and how we feel about them, all of us, right, as feminists, all of us, right, as you said, the we, right, is a beautiful thing. Uh, and I think we can do this together. So I'm totally a Pollyanna. I'm with you. I refuse yep. to be told that this will not get better because I've seen improvement in seven years. Absolutely. Uh, so we're getting there, I think. I think we have time for one more question. <laughs> it was a fear. Uh, and it's Philip, and I just want to put a plug, this is going to be, Philip uh, Tan is going to ask a question now. Uh, Philip's creative director here at the Game Lab that is hosted by CMSW. If you're interested in creating better futures, the Game Lab really prides itself on being an inclusive place where lots of different folks can come in and play and work together. So I just want to put in a little plug before Philip asks his question. Yeah. MIT has done some really ground, but you know this, I'm talking, like I'm preaching to you what great work you've done, right? about sexism in gaming. Like your project, like the MIT Civic Project, right? Are you in the room? So I'm so embarrassed that, love you. Okay, I mean that was breakthrough stuff at the time. It was a long time ago now, but you've been saying it for a long time, right? And we're listening, at least I was listening. <laughs> um, so thank you for that work. 
Um, oh boy, and the, the pressure is on. Well, f f first of all, again, thank you for for being able to speak in front of us and and and, and sh sharing all these details. I know it's tough, but it's it, it needs to be said. Um, I have a question about the communities because with every one of these cases, there seems to be these online communities that are there, and I'm less interested in the people in the communities taking action and more about them reinforcing the people who who do. Uh, um, to what extent are the folks who are taking part in these mobs um, performing for an audience? I, I mean, uh, clearly most of the rancor is directed at the victim, but how much of it is, how much do they care about the other people on, in these communities, I guess? Right, no, it's performance art, yeah. clearly. I mean, so you can see as we look at threads, right? Sure that it is a performance to be who can be more destructive and almost like you get reward points. Or as the guy who ran Creep Shots, you know, Violent Acres or Michael Brushed, when he was finally sort of outed by Adrian Chen and confronted, he's like, you know what? I got such a contact high from with the likes of the creepier and more invasive these upskirt photos were. I felt like loved and wanted. Right, so that absolutely, it's performative in a way that is kind of uh, building up people's confidence. Oh, I, people approve of me, right? And, and I think we lose sight of, like, we, we forget our humanity, we need to bring it into the calculus, right? Like, I think these folks use, lose their humanity in that moment yeah. of performance. I, I agree with you, but I also think that they don't see themselves as performers. I think they see themselves as noble warriors. No, right. no, and, you know, yeah, and I, I, I think that, I think coming to your point, I think, you know, as an engineer, I tend to, like, really, think about these things pragmatically, like human beings are drawn to extremes, right? Like um, we want the dumbest dumb movie, right? We want the loudest movie. We want the movie with the most explosions, you know? We want the sexiest movie, you know? We, we tend to be drawn to extremes. And I think that this is just a behavior where you have these, these people, you know, I think a lot about reading about the psychology of some particularly conservative sites. I'm not trying to be political, but it's true that Gamergate has a bit of a right-wing bent. And you know, part of the reason conservatives tend to listen to right-wing radio is they feel like it's their space where their views can get heard because they feel prosecuted by the rest of society. They feel like they can't have these views about A, B, or C and without being attacked over them. So I think what you see is there are these communities that come around where they feel safe having these views that like, oh, the feminists just need to shut up and get out of games. Oh, they're not a real gamer. And I think like there's almost this extinction burst where there's nowhere else that they're able to have this conversation. It just kind of explodes because of that. Does that ring true to you? Does that not? Yeah. No, no, I think in Gamergate, at least. Yeah. I have to say, every time I've done a radio show, like I've done all these NPR shows where we're, we do talk about right. Gamergate and the phone calls, like, yeah. you know, from, and, and poor Kojo Namdu, this is the last time he was like, whoa, the phone. Like, yeah. you know, they just like, as if I fundamentally offended them. Yeah. Like, I'm a social justice warrior and how dare I? Like, I think you're right to that. But, you know, in the wide swath of these things, I think there's all that complexity, yeah, right, yeah. as we were noted. If this were an easy issue, we would solve it. 
but it's a multifactorial, very complicated issue with a lot of nuance. And I wish technology could yeah. solve it, and we could automate all this, but I, I, no, I don't think no. so. It's going to be the law. It's going to be you doing your part in getting some prosecutions. And maybe this is a good place to end it here. Yeah. That currently, you know, if I go out there and I play Grand Theft Auto right now, and I get a rocket launcher and I go shoot up police helicopters forever, the only thing that's going to happen is, like, after a while, um, the police are going to come arrest me and go steal I'm going to lose $100 of cash. Right now, if you're a gamer gator and you're saying death threats to me, make videos wearing a skull mask, you know, make lurid, extreme descriptions of how you're going to murder me, nothing. you don't even lose $100. No, like, it's, nothing it's costless. Currently. There's like no speed right. bump. Yeah. And I think it's so important. To me, if I could wave my magic wand to get any one change, it would be getting some prosecutors to act on some cases, just one. And make an example of one person. So suddenly, these people understand the consequences have been introduced in the equation. So I think what you're doing is literally the most important work right now. So thank you. <laughs> well, thanks to all our speakers for an amazing session. Um, so. Two, two plugs, I want to encourage you to pick up uh, Danielle's book, but I also want to encourage you to check out Brianna's games. I think far too often, working, fantastic women game designers get kind of overshadowed. Their work gets overshadowed, so I really want you to go out and, and check out the work that these women are doing, actually creatively and contributing to the industry. So thanks all for coming. There's some food and drink outside. Join us for further conversation, and thank you both so much. Thanks.